Hello, and welcome back to the Dayson Digest. My name is Ray Perez, one of the third-year infectious diseases fellows working with the Dayson Network. And today we have two of our stalwarts of the Dayson program joining us, uh, Dr. Jeanette Bouchard, one of our Dayson liaisons. How's it going, Jeanette? It's going. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and Dr. Libby Dodds-Ashley. How are you doing, Libby? Doing great. Thanks, Ray. Today, uh, we are here for the last podcast of the calendar year. So uh, we're taking a little bit of a break for the holidays. So we'll see you all back in January. But we're excited to end the year with this really great article by the title of Evaluation of Multi-Site Programmatic Bundle to Reduce Unnecessary Antibiotic Prescribing for Respiratory Infections, a Retrospective Cohort Study. This was by Ryan Stevens and colleagues and was just recently published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases just this past November. So to set the stage a little bit about what was going on in this article, we were it was looking at a bunch of different interventions to reduce inappropriate antimicrobial prescribing in the outpatient setting. As a reminder, 80 to 90% of antimicrobial prescribing is in the outpatient setting. We talk so much about all the good work that we're doing in our network hospitals, but really the outpatient side is where a ton of antibiotics are prescribed. Studies have estimated that as many as 50% of these outpatient antibiotics may be inappropriate. And antimicrobial prescriptions for upper respiratory infections in particular make up the largest component of this inappropriate prescribing. Now, there have been a lot of studies before that have looked at how can we reduce this inappropriate prescribing for upper respiratory infections. There have been studies looking at peer comparison reports, antibiotic commitment posters, communication training for providers, tons of different things. However, a lot of these have been limited to single center studies or for short follow-up periods. And it's hard to look at things like balancing measures when you're first investigating these outpatient settings. So this study really start, sought to step up one of these outpatient interventions. And they looked at a whole bundle of ARI interventions together to strengthen that existing evidence. And they also wanted to look for a really long time, an extended follow-up period to see, do these effects that have been demonstrated in the past hold? And then they also wanted to bring in the idea of a balancing measure. Uh, and here they looked at patient, provider, and encounter level factors associated with continued inappropriate prescribing after the intervention. So we have all these evidence-based strategies. Once we roll them out uh, and there's still people who are prescribing inappropriately, what might be some of the risk factors for those people who are left over? Uh, so Libby, I know that you uh, brought this article to my attention. What about it kind of stood out to you as something that you thought was really interesting? Well, I think we have so many of our DASON member hospitals that are looking for ways to perform outpatient stewardship interventions. And so I was impressed by this one because it did include such a broad network of hospitals. You know, I had geographic diversity, the things that we look for, because so often when we read one of these interventions, it's in a very controlled setting, um, a small population. And so we always worry about the scalability and reproducibility of it. So the fact that this was done in a network of clinics throughout a large health system was attractive. Awesome. Yeah. So just to dive a little bit more into those methods that you were alluding to. So this study took a place across the entire Mayo Clinic enterprise. So this included their sites and their main destination sites in Rochester, Arizona, and Florida, as well as a full network of outpatient clinics throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin. The study went on for a long time with the retrospective cohort spanning from January 1st of 2019 
all the way out to December 31st of 2022. Uh, and the interventions uh, were started in primary care, urgent care, and emergency medicine. So really quite a diverse array of outpatient settings. The interventions were added in a stepwise fashion starting in July of 2020. And we mentioned this was a bundle. So this included provider education, patient handouts on symptom management, dedicated order panels with clinical decision support built in for outpatient providers, uh, an antibiotic commitment poster for outpatient clinics and outpatient areas, peer comparison reporting, a provider-facing dashboard to facilitate self-auditing of providers who are interested in seeing how they were doing on appropriate antimicrobial prescribing, and then a lead ID physician pharmacist who are administering the program. So, uh, you know, uh, Jeanette, Libby mentioned that this was a cool project that looked at diversity of sites and thinking about scalability. But, you know, gosh, as you read through that list of interventions, this bundle, this is a really complex and multifaceted intervention. Uh, I imagine for smaller sites, it might be hard to think about not rolling out just one thing, but a bunch of things. What, what do you think about the feasibility of a bundle like this for our sites? Um, I definitely think it's a very robust bundle. I was also equally as impressed that they rolled this out in the midst of COVID um, because I just think my personal bandwidth during July of 2020 was not very large. So um, very impressed that they rolled out such a robust bundle across three different geographic areas within their um, institutional enterprise. I think a lot of our sites and Libby can chime in, but if they have a some sort of antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist in the outpatient realm, or just a pharmacist dealing with OPAT as well as ambulatory, ambulatory care needs, um, it's just one person. And so I think it would really take a, a huge team to be able to roll this out to a lot of different sites, potentially picking some of the higher interventions that you could do. So maybe uh, we do a lot of provider feedback so we could do peer comparison as well as patient handouts and maybe an order panel and just kind of picking a few of those and leaving some on the on the floor would be the better approach for a lot of our sites. No, thanks. And I think that's really helpful context to keep in mind as we consider the results moving forward. So to take a deeper dive on the outcomes that they were looking at for this study. So they looked at encounters and appropriateness based on diagnosis codes associated with those outpatient encounters. And those diagnosis codes were organized into tiers of diagnoses where antibiotics are always indicated. So those are tier one diagnoses. Uh, diagnoses in which antibiotics are sometimes indicated tier two or never indicated. So those are tier three uh, diagnoses. Looking at these tier three diagnoses where antibiotics are never indicated really has become, for better or for worse, the standard model in which these studies are done. When looking at those outcomes, they also decided to exclude all encounters with COVID-19 as a diagnosis, given so much variability in practice and, and difficulty in that early time of the pandemic. So for this study, they took all ambulatory encounters with tier three diagnoses, and they looked at both in-person and virtual visits, which I think was a unique aspect of the study. Their primary outcome was the percentage of tier three encounters, which resulted in an antibiotic prescription. Additionally, as secondary outcomes, they looked at the rate of repeat respiratory-related healthcare contact within 14 days of the index visit. So you can almost think about that as a readmission rate uh, for patients who had come to clinic for a URI visit. And then they looked at patient, provider, and encounter-level factors associated with unnecessary prescribing 
or repeat respiratory-related healthcare contact after implementation of the intervention bundle. So it's essentially taking a deep dive at those readmissions and seeing who are those patients who are at particularly high risk of this readmission even after our intervention. The study was split into three time periods. Their pre-implementation period was January 2019 to June 2020, and they had over 96,000 encounters from that period. And they had their implementation window when they were rolling out all of these interventions. That was from July 2020 through June 2021. As you mentioned, Jeanette, really the heat of the pandemic is when they were doing the bulk of this work. They had uh, 19,000 encounters from that time. You can also just see the effect of the pandemic and keeping people out of clinics. Um, and the and the, the the efficacy of masks and keeping people out of uh, respiratory illnesses there. And then their post-implementation window from July 2021 to December of 2022 uh, included over 69,000 encounters. So, I, you know, as before we talk about these results, you know, we, I was speaking a little bit there about using these tiered diagnoses as the standard of care for this work. And, you know, I've always found... I, research based on ICD codes to be challenging. There's a lot of caveats in terms of how those codes are chosen and questions about their accuracy. Um, would love to hear your all's thoughts on kind of the pros and cons of this methodology and, and things to keep in mind when considering these data. Yeah, right. You know, I think so code shifting, we can talk about that a little bit when we get into the discussion of the article. It's always a concern whenever you tell providers what you're going to measure. You know, we are going to measure these targeted diagnoses. Um, it was also a time where I think there was a lot of, you know, thought and scrutiny going on over how we coded respiratory virus visits because of it being tracked for COVID so much. Uh, so certainly the pre and post were not similar in that regard. Um, but I also think about this, you know, absolutely there's the opportunity to misclassify. And I know everyone sort of discounts this research, but as we do more and more research on these large data sets, such as this one, you know, a lot of times I think that those cases where you can think of miscoding, they tend to all come out in the wash. You know, I think that, again, the, the bigger issue is the observer bias because you tell them what you're going to be looking at. I don't think the big problem is that we can't rely completely on these ICD-10 codes because, um, you know, we've been involved in a few projects and other work within the, the DeCASIP Center. Then we can spend hours and months and sometimes over a year going through codes and doing all this very careful analysis. And we don't get different results than when we look at the broad group without all that refinement and review. So I guess it is the standard of care. I think it's becoming more and more common, the metric. I know that as groups like CMS, et cetera, look to move this forward, I think it's here to stay. So I think we just need to sort of get comfortable with it. And like so many measures, like, like learns it's the ins and outs of it and it's pros and cons and kind of go from there. Thanks. I think that's super helpful context. Um, so with that in mind, the results. So in thinking about the baseline patient characteristics, who are these people? So 45% of the encounters were patients aged less than 18. So actually a, a predominantly, not predominantly, but close to a largely pediatric study here with 20% of the patients between ages zero and two years old. So lots of young patients uh, in this cohort. 89% of the patients were white. Uh, and 15% had a significant pre-existing respiratory condition, such as cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, COPD, asthma. So was fairly enriched with some of these sicker patients for whom you'd worry a little bit more about a respiratory infection. 45% of the encounters came from primary care, with the rest of them coming from the ED and urgent cares. Um, and then a decent representation of telehealth. Um, interestingly, you saw as a 
forced from the pandemic, a real increase in that within the pre-implementation group, about 3.5% of visits were done over telehealth, whereas in the post-implementation group, 8% of the encounters were uh, done via telehealth. So just to ask you guys, does this feel fairly representative? I, I have to say, I was, as someone who has not practiced pediatrics in quite a while, I was really impressed by how weighted this was towards the kids. I think I think it definitely makes sense that it's weighted towards the kids, right? As an adult, I can probably count on three fingers how many times I've brought myself to some sort of urgent care or telehealth visit for an upper respiratory tract infection, but I think it's a little bit more scary. And so they tend to go see, uh, parents will bring children in um, to go see a physician more, but as an adult, you're like, eh, it's my normal respiratory virus. So I feel like as an adult, I don't particularly go back to the clinic all that often for an upper respiratory tract infection. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just even the payers sort of lean toward the children having that coverage, you know, um, there's such a push for it. I would be somewhat interested. I, I don't know that I saw this, but I wonder if the telehealth wasn't more predominantly adults because <laughs> maybe they would call in, uh, but, but they're not going to go anywhere on their uh, lunch yeah. break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the other thing is when do adults truly have a lot of time to be heading into clinic? I think that's a, a big key to a lot of these, whereas children typically get kicked out of daycare and school. And so there's time there to bring your child to the to the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's go ahead and get into the nitty gritty of these results then. Uh, so for antibiotic prescribing for tier three diagnoses, they saw a significant decrease from 21.7% in the pre-implementation period down to 11.2% in the post-intervention period. And they saw decreases across all of their geographic regions and all of their departments with the largest improvement in their urgent care, where they saw a 51% relative reduction in their antimicrobial prescribing for tier three diagnoses. So huge impact on those urgent cares. When prescribing did occur, um, they all were also able to increase the relative proportion of preferred agents. So using beta-lactams instead of using uh, macrolides like azithromycin, they saw preferred agents increase from 30% up to 47% of those visits. Looking at their secondary outcomes of repeat healthcare contact, repeat contact was less common when an antibiotic was prescribed. So if the patient was prescribed an antibiotic, uh, repeat contact was at 6.9% versus if they were not prescribed an antibiotic, repeat contact was at 9.7%. However, after the intervention, in the group of patients who did not receive an antibiotic, they actually saw a decrease in repeat contact. So before the intervention, about 9.9% of patients who were not prescribed an antibiotic would reach back out. After the intervention, only about 9.4% would reach back out. In thinking about those predictors of who are the patients after the intervention was done who were still likely to get an inappropriate antibiotic, what were some of those things that stood out? Among the patients, advanced age, increasing Charleston comorbidity index, serous otitis media or ear disorder diagnoses, afternoon encounters in the clinic, and male gender were most associated uh, with inappropriate antibiotic use. A few patient factors were found to be protective and actually be associated with decreased antimicrobial prescribing. Those primary ones were Black or Asian races relative to white races. And interestingly, a high total monthly clinic encounter volume. 
So if you were someone who tended to be in the clinic a lot, that actually was a protective effect against getting an inappropriate antibiotic. Interestingly, they saw no difference between provider type in the rate of inappropriate antimicrobial prescribing. So nurse practitioners, PAs, residents, physicians, all seem to prescribe at about the same rate. And then when thinking about those uh, risk factors for inappropriate prescribing, they were pretty heavily weighted. 95% of the differences were accounted for by just looking at age, Charleston comorbidity index, and the primary diagnosis that was listed. So those are really the main predictors. In terms of predictors of repeat healthcare contact, who are the people who are most likely to call back into the clinic with an issue? Um, they found the main predictors there were if it was a telehealth visit, you were much more likely to reach back out. If it was an urgent care or emergency medicine visit, much more likely to reach back out than a primary care visit. Again, the primary diagnosis, age, and comorbidity index were also big factors here. And a few other little uh, findings that I thought were kind of interesting as I dug through some of the tables here. When you looked at that telehealth subgroup specifically, the intervention did not show any benefit in the pre and post analyses. So perhaps a, a caveat, an interesting thing to pay attention to there. I thought it was also interesting that even in the pre-intervention group, the ED really like stood out as before the intervention being our best cohort and avoiding inappropriate prescribing. And so wanted to give them credit where it's due there. Um, I also, you know, I mentioned that provider type output and they had almost half of their encounters performed by APPs. And so this is actually encounter to a lot of previous data I had seen looking at comparing provider type. And so I thought that was really interesting to see so many and no difference between those. Um, and then I, it really stood out to me that bronchitis and ear disorders were some of the greatest offenders in terms of inappropriate antibiotics. Um, so a lot that we get to talk about and to dive into there, but um, I think just to start out with the top line result here, I mean, huge improvement, almost a 50% relative re reduction across all of their departments and sites. You know, what, what about this intervention do you think made it particularly powerful? Oh, gosh, right. You know, I think uh, Jeanette already talked about how robust this intervention was. You know, they sort of hit them from all fronts. Um, so I, I think it probably also came with this tremendous amount of education. You know, they had targeted people at the individual uh, geographic locations who were the champions for it. So really getting out and pushing it. They changed the way they were ordering everything, which I think um, we've seen work in other settings. So I think all of that together just, I mean, this is not something that is easy to pluck and plug into your own facility. That This was a tremendous lift to get this up and off the ground. And I think that's reflected in, in the success they saw. Great. Uh, and, you know, they dove into a bunch of different interesting sub factors here that was a lot more detailed than I think other studies I've seen on this topic. And so th these factors for patients and providers that increase the risk even after the even after the intervention, I thought were particularly interesting. Uh, the afternoon clinic encounter jumping to the top five risk factors really stood out to me as kind of a funny and interesting one. Did you find any of these risk factors to be particularly surprising or things that you expected to see that ended up being absent? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> telehealth visit, department specialty being kind of up in the top two makes a lot of sense when you are reading them out because those are, I think, going to be the providers where the patient doesn't maybe have as much trust in who is prescribing or educating. And so 
Um, these are probably providers where they only met once, whereas primary care might be their primary care that they visit all the time. They have a longstanding relationship with. So just kind of thinking about urgent care and emergency department, as well as telehealth visit and kind of how those trust variables play into that potentially being a repeat healthcare um, option. But I do think it was interesting that the afternoon people tended to get <laughs> more antibiotics because they just of the decision fatigue by the end of like, yeah, just take it. <laughs> Here's the antibiotic. I think we also have to not go off this topic before we address the elephant in the room, which is why did the men get more prescriptions? You know, why was, why was that something that happened? I, I, I'm very interested in digging a little bit more down into that because there's all, you know, everybody jokes about it, but um, is, is it perhaps they were presenting with similar viral illnesses with symptoms that might have been um, portrayed as more severe, you know, the, the infamous man flu. Or it could no, be absolutely. that they're just harder to say no to potentially, um, especially if you tag in those, the racial ethnicities that also had a lower antibiotic prescription rate. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about issues of equity in antimicrobial prescribing, and I think it really does stand out that uh, you know black and Asian patients were prescribed at a much were prescribed inappropriate antibiotics at a lower rate. So in in a way, it's ended up being protective, but it does make you wonder, and uh, you know, what are those underlying factors that are driving lower antibiotic prescribing among those underrepresented groups? One other thing I did want to talk about um, as we're thinking about those repeat healthcare contacts is it's a very interesting balancing measure, and I haven't seen that in a study like this before. Um, and I can imagine pushback from clinics if you were like, hey, we want to roll out this intervention, and then and someone being like, oh, God, like we're going to have to deal with all of these extra callbacks and this extra workflow. How are we going to handle that? And so as we think about the implementation of something like this, how would you guys think about selling that to a clinic? What are the arguments that you would make to say like, hey, yeah, you may get a few extra calls, but here are, here's really where you're going to be winning in that regard. I guess what stood out to me is it's still in each population less than 10% of the time. You know, and I, I think that's the big message. Like, they, so there where was a significant difference, but it was decimal points away sometimes. And so being able to say, correct, it was because we had the numbers to show that there was a, you know, a significant difference between those groups in terms of who came back and you're less likely to come if you got an antibiotic, but you weren't void of coming back if you got an antibiotic. And it was, again, still less than 10% for both groups. And I think that that's really the take home message there. No, I think it's a good one that to remind ourselves sometimes a statistically significant difference is very different than a clinically significant difference. And in this case, when you're talking about 7% of patients calling back versus 9% of patients calling back, gosh, that is not uh, a, a huge difference if you're going to be saving people a lot of inappropriate antibiotics. So I just thought that was a, a cool point to see made. Yeah, I do think it's important to have those those balancing metrics in stewardship studies like this. So I was glad to see it. I, I thought that was a, a huge pro to their approach, um, you know, and, and helpful. The other thing, you know, and it, I just, this just, the thought just came to me, you know, right, what we don't know is how many of these prescriptions were using the watchful waiting approach. So especially like that really stands out to that otitis group. And I'm wondering if perhaps there wasn't also maybe not just prescriptions for watchful waiting, but maybe the provider said, if you call me, if you're not better in 72 hours, call me back and, and we'll give you something. You know, that I, I wonder if that wasn't what we're seeing here. This was a pre-agreed upon plan for watchful waiting in, in a small population. Just something to think about. 
Yeah, absolutely. How much of those callbacks were essentially baked in as part of the approach and is very appropriate. Absolutely. Especially what? with the population being so young as well. And it's a very common methodology with the young patients. So I think they do mention it very briefly in the limitations, but that definitely could be driving a lot of it. One big thing that stuck out to me in thinking about those risk factors among patients still getting antibiotics was, is we just as providers get nervous when we're dealing with sick people who are higher risk, the, you know, age comorbidity index and diagnosis accounted for 95% of kind of the prediction of uh, still getting antibiotics after intervention. This gets back to a lot of the fear and emotion that tends to drive antimicrobial prescribing. And I think it's a particularly challenging thing to think about tackling uh, on the outpatient setting as we think about what next steps might be after these sorts of interventions. Um, do you guys have thoughts on uh, strategies that could be effective in helping manage those fears? I don't know that I have a strategy per se. I'm interested in investigating it a little bit more. It'd be interesting to sort of see how much did the patient perception play into that? You know, are we starting to see where, you know, decades into get smart and public health campaigns about not taking antibiotics that, you know, we tend, we know those tend to be uh, have better uptake in younger patient populations. So is that also playing a part of it? Is that our older patients are still more of the mindset and, and had more sort of conditioned training that when you have these symptoms, you get an antibiotic. And so they're harder to convince otherwise. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, but it is certainly interesting. And I think, you know, that's, it's, that's probably training, not just the healthcare providers, but also the patients and the family members of those patients who might be at the visit as well. Um, cause it's probably a different end game that they're looking at, you know, and those patients, you're probably much more worried about a subsequent hospitalization than what someone you perceive as healthier and younger. And so, you know, you, you might be thinking you're staving off a worse outcome than you're risking with the antibiotics in those people, but without further investigation, we'll never really know. One of the Great. big Other pros of these larger data sets is it leaves you with a lot of questions for further investigation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things to me as we're seeing telehealth just really expand after the pandemic um, is the the lack of efficacy for this huge bundle of interventions on those telehealth patients in particular, and that also being this risk factor for callback. And so to me, that is one of the most interesting findings of this and one that I'm hoping that we'll continue to get a lot more research on as, as telehealth expands. Because, you know, I, I think it is just a huge, important resource for, you know, rural areas, for under-resourced areas. We can get um, service to patients who have a harder time accessing healthcare. So, so important to be expanding telehealth, but also keeping in mind on these sorts of balancing measures for what happens when you expand telehealth. It's also would be interesting. I don't, I don't think they really touched on this, but this kind of goes back to Libby's point is a lot, especially during COVID, a lot of the telehealth visits were almost like triaging and screening. And so I don't know if they had a way of discerning like a triage telehealth visit that then subsequently led to an in-person visit because that's just the pathway that kind of was happening with COVID a lot of the time. And that potentially is why the bundle didn't work quite as well in those groups is because they, the main pathway for <laughs> getting into see someone was telehealth. Awesome. Any other big points that stood out to you guys? Uh, things you think the our listeners should be checking out when they have a chance to look at this article? 
gosh, I guess just, you know, for based on member hospitals. So this is definitely, as I've said, not a, not a plug and play. Um, but on the bright side, it showed that they can change prescribing patterns in these folks. And it's, uh, definitely worth the effort. You know, there are a few other stewardship interventions that we can impact that will have a 50% reduction in antibiotic prescriptions. So it's definitely worth something taking a look at. And there might be, you know, key pieces of this that are, are easy to export and use in our different practice settings uh, when we're trying to do ambulatory stewardship. So that, so there, don't be overwhelmed by the number of pieces to their intervention. Implementing some of it may still have a great effect. Awesome. Well, thank you both for all of your time and some excellent conversation. Uh, until the new year, uh, we wish all of our listeners out there a happy holidays and hope you all have some wonderful time with your families. Thanks all. Bye. 